you have your Bibles this morning, I'd uh, <clears throat> like you to turn over to the book of Proverbs chapter 14. I'd like to welcome all the people that are tuning in on YouTube this morning. We've got some 15 or 16 people that got in on it today and following along, and we hope that uh, you're enjoying everything. All the quality that you see that we're doing here, the cameras and everything, we did it for you folks. I get Not a week goes by that I don't get a phone call from somebody in Oregon or Florida or somewhere in the country that uh, follows our ministry and can't find a Bible-believing church and, and stays faithful to where we're at. So we, we appreciate that. But Proverbs chapter 14. And today we're going to look at another set of verses. We kind of have been taking these verses. You know, sometimes when you come through Proverbs, you'll take four, five, six verses and you get through all of those. Sometimes one verse will be so important that you just spend the whole time on that. But uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been taking them in, in little series or little blocks of verses and uh, kind of all tie together. So we've been kind of doing that way with it. And last week, we had a, a great look at uh, how we view others uh, and, uh, and the uh, inheritance that we're, we're going to leave our children. And it talked about an inheritance of folly. And we saw a great principle in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, one that that uh, I think that you always ought to keep in front of your uh, thought process and always look at it and remember it. And it's simply that wisdom is the principal thing. And uh, the principles are the Word of God. We talk about it all the time. Uh, getting uh, to the point in your life where uh, you operate through principles. A principled life. Principles uh, based on the Bible. And how that, that gets us a crown of knowledge in this life and yet leads to a crown of righteousness at the judgment seat of Christ in the next life. And uh, today we're going to look at verses 22 through 25, and uh, let's read it, and then we'll, we'll jump right into it here. <clears throat> Do they not err that devise evil? But mercy and truth shall be to them that devise good. In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolish of the fools is folly. A true witness delivereth souls, but a deceitful witness speaketh lies. Chris Schmidt, would you ask God's blessing on the offer, or on the service this morning? Amen. Now, verse 22, as you notice, our first verse here, it starts with a question. And it says, do they not err that devise evil? And the answer uh, is, of course, yes, they certainly do. And uh, when you begin to look at this, you're going to, first of all, and I want you to be able to get all your notes in your Bible, uh, the they here, as we look at it doctrinally, will be the Antichrist and his crowd. I always like to show you how the verses all kind of go different ways so you can, and then we come back to the practical. And uh, it dealing doctrinally with the Antichrist and his crowd who plot and plans and devises evil against the nation of Israel. I've showed you before how that in the Old Testament, we talk a lot about the Antichrist, and that's a very popular subject today. Uh, but uh, uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, I've showed you many, many times how that there are 18 men 
who in their life and the things that they do really are a type and foreshadow the Antichrist. There's 18 types of the Antichrist in the Bible. Somebody says, why 18? Because his number is 666, and 6 times 3 is 18. That's, that's why. But anyway, and you're going to find that uh, in each case in the Bible, each one of these men uh, go up against the nation of Israel. Each one of these types, each one of these actual men in the Old Testament devises a plan, devises some kind of plotting against the nation of Israel uh, to hurt the people of God. And when you go to places like Revelation chapter 12 and 13, and, and in the book of Daniel especially, Daniel chapter 11 and 12, uh, you see very clearly that uh, the real Antichrist, when he comes, he does exactly what this proverb says. He, he goes against and devises an evil plan against the nation of Israel. Now, in a practical sense, how it applies to you and me, we want to look at that now. It'll be a reference, of course, to anybody who will devise evil against the people of God. You know, somebody who has a plan to position himself or herself uh, to hurt someone or use someone uh, for their own gain. They have put a whole elaborate plan together. And I've seen it all down through uh, my own ministry of 40-some years, and I'm sure some of you have seen it. I've seen young men that go into a church, and uh, their whole planning and plotting is to undermine what's going on in the church, to try to get ahead or try to establish uh, whatever they want to try to establish. I've seen men that were businessmen. And, uh, you know, they're either insurance salesmen, and this is no, no uh, uh, slam if you're an insurance salesman this morning, or an investment broker, or whatever. And uh, they'll join the biggest church in town, two, 3,000 people. And then they proceed, they have a plan, <coughs> to work the congregation, to make money off of it. <clears throat> they'll begin to find out who the people are and send them flyers on whatever they're doing, whatever they're selling, and they'll, they'll pretend that they care about the things of God, but in reality, they just want to make a buck off the people. And they look at the people in the church as a, as a, as a sales prospect. They have a very clear plan to it, and they do it by design. Now, the first part of this is in the form, as I said, of a question, because the answer is an obvious no. You won't get away with it, and yes, you certainly do err when you try to do it. There's a great verse in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're giving him all kinds of problems about what he's doing. And uh, they pretend that they know the Bible, like so many of God's people today, yet they're using the Bible to their own advantage. I mean, when you study the Bible, you'll find that the three biggest enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ were all within his own church, with his own group of people, the nation of Israel. You have the scribes, they are legitimate. They were the keepers of the Bible, the Old Testament. They had to be from the tribe of Levi. But then you had the Sadducees and you had the Pharisees. And when you begin to look at it and study it, you'll find that throughout the Bible, nowhere, were there ever any Sadducees or Pharisees ever recognized or ever put into the nation of Israel? No, no. That was a plan. That was a devised plan by men who wanted to get control of the nation of Israel through their religion. So they come up with an idea, plotted and planned, for a group to be called the Pharisees and a group to be called the Sadducees. 
and neither one of them believed anything about the Bible. They certainly didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, and all three groups were his biggest problem. And when he was talking to them one time, and they were talking about where they were at, where he was at, he gave one of the greatest verses, and and I, I, I use it all the time, or at least I think about it all the time, and he simply says this, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. And of course, that was their problem. The simple truth is, in all the Bible, anybody who devises a plan, plots a plan, comes up with a deception, who tries to do what the verse says, they do err not knowing the Scriptures. Because you will not get away with it. And certainly, you'll never profit by it. And in the Bible, there's some great examples of this. And I always like uh, when you find places in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs is such a rich book, and it covers such an expanse of the whole Bible that there's always great examples. And when you talk about somebody putting a plan together, a devising a plan to hurt somebody, boy, there's some great examples in the Bible. The first one that comes to mind would be Cain and Abel. Cain plotted and planned against Abel. This one was on religious grounds. You know the story that, that both Cain and Abel brought a sacrifice unto the Lord, uh, Cain had brought the firstlings of the fruit of his own hands. He was a great gardener, had a great garden, had a greatest fruit stand in any place, probably in the all of Eden, and he had some incredible stuff that he had grown. And so he brings that, but unfortunately God didn't accept that because it was by the labors of his own hands. Now that's a picture in the Bible of you trying to get to heaven by doing some good work. Now, Abel, on the other hand, when he comes to bring his sacrifice, he's a keeper of sheep. So he takes, the Bible says, one of the firstlings of the flocks, he kills it, he sacrifices that animal to the Lord, and God accepts his sacrifice but will not accept Cain's. Now, that's a great story in the Bible, but that story illustrates a great practical truth for you and for me, and maybe some of you here today. If you're going to get God's blessing and you're going to get saved and you're going to go to heaven and you're going to get you're going to get what God has for you you got to get the right sacrifice you can't do it with the labors of your own hands like Cain you have to do it by offering up something innocent which Jesus Christ already was offered for you so you simply trust him as your own personal savior Cain didn't like that and it wasn't like that God was being a mean person and, and just flat out rejected him. God tried to reason with him. God tried to talk with him. And God said, you know what, Cain? I'm not sure what you're upset about. You know I'm God. You know I only tell you the truth. You're upset because I didn't accept your sacrifice. Here's what we'll do. You take those wonderful fruits and vegetables, as great as they are, you take them over to your brother Abel, trade them up to him, get a lamb, bring that lamb back and offer that, and I'll accept it. But Cain didn't want to hear it. You know why? Because Cain had already in his heart left the presence of God. And it festered in Cain. And it became a problem in, with Cain. And Cain now began to look at his brother Abel as the real point of his hatred. And Abel had nothing to do with it. That brings up another point. When you do what's right with God, there's always going to be people who don't do what's right are going to hate you for doing what's right. And so he looks at his brother, and he hates his brother, and he plotted and planned, wound up killing his brother. It's an incredible example. Ah, uh, you have the story of Jacob and Esau. There's another one. Jacob picture of a worldly Christian. The name Jacob means supplanter. It means schemer. 
And you find all of Jacob's life. He's just like so many of us as God's people. He's always trying to get the edge and get the angle. He always never wants to wait on God to do it for him. He always wants to find a way to get it himself. And he's got a brother, and his brother's name is Esau. And Esau's a, a picture of a worldly person. And uh, Esau's the oldest, so he has the birthright and he has the blessing. And Jacob wants those. So Jacob plots, he schemes, he devises a plan. Oh, it's an incredible plan when you look at it in the Bible. He devises a plan, he plots and schemes to get that blessing and gets that, and get that, uh, that inheritance. And he does. It's an incredible story. You got Saul and David. Saul and David. Now, there's a great one. Saul was the king. David was just a little shepherd boy. But Saul saw God in David. Saul saw God doing something in David's life that God wasn't doing in Saul's life. And Saul hated David for it. And all through the first part of Samuel and, and, uh, and, and King, you find where, where Saul is plotting to kill David. He's doing everything he can to try to get rid of him. And it's an incredible story to go through how that Saul tried to plot to kill David and put a plan together because he was so insecure with David being uh, uh, in a relationship with God that Saul himself could not have. You look at a little bit later on when David became king, one of his own sons, Absalom, Boy, there's a tragic story of a family for you. I mean, he, he Absalom, he, he tried to undermine his own father's kingdom. He wanted to be king instead of his father, so he puts a plan together. He stands down by the gate where all the people are coming in. And when they're coming in to see with a problem, to get it fixed, he intercepts them before they can get to David. And he tells them how what a great, better counselor he is than their father David. And he says, oh, you know what? If I was only king, I could solve all of your problems. Kind of sounds like the Republican and the Democrat caucuses and all the, all the debates that they have. Oh, if I was president, I'd fix every problem we have. Well, you'd never be able to fix all the problems we have. The only way you can fix the problem we have is to put Jesus Christ on the throne as president. And that ain't going to happen. Not yet. But it will. Now, they all devised an evil plan for their own personal selfish gain. And yet, the proverb is true because in Cain and Abel, it didn't work out. Jacob and Esau, <laughs> go to Genesis chapter 32 and see the day that God got Jacob alone and see how it worked out. Saul and David, Saul gets the kingdom taken from him, winds up a suicide, and David gets the throne. Absalom winds up getting hung in a tree. With his, by his hair. He had beautiful hair. Long hair. And he's being chased by David's guys. And he's on the back of a mule when it's running, you know. And he goes under an oak tree. And his beautiful hair gets caught in the tree. And he pulls him off. And he, he gets hung in the tree. Can't get down. Somebody comes up. Shoots him in the heart with an arrow. End of Absalom. Moral of the story, keep your hair short if you're going to ride a mule. <laughs> All of them got caught in their own plan. And the plan never worked out the way they planned it. Not one case in the Bible, and I'll just add this, nor will there ever be one case today in life 
where it will ever work for anybody to devise a plan against something that God wants to make happen. Because the proverb is true, that God has set up some laws that are at work on planet Earth, and they are righteous laws. They're absolute laws. They're principles that when violated, they come back to you. Now, at the same time, look at the second part of that verse. It says, Do they not err that devise evil? That's the first part. Now look at this. But mercy and truth shall be unto them that devise good. Now the verse is clearly saying that, and we need to understand this, that just as a man can devise evil to hurt somebody, plot to hurt somebody and devise a plan to their hurt. Somebody can also devise a plan, plot, put a devise and plan in place to help somebody. It's an incredible concept. Now, the two key words here are mercy and truth. A lot of people in the world today, good people, have mercy for people, but that mercy is not based on the truth of God's Word. You have relief organizations and groups, and I'm certainly not fighting them. I appreciate what they do to help people. I certainly do. I'm just making a point. They help people. They show mercy, but they never give them the truth. And, of course, I've always thought to myself, I mean, what good is it if you feed a starving person or get him a better place to live or help him wherever he's at, and help him get to a better place in life if you just leave him die and go to hell and spend an eternity without Christ. I mean, making his life better is good, but making his eternal life sure is even better. But mercy has to be connected to truth. And many times you see good groups of people. I remember that uh, reading about uh, William Booth, who started the Salvation Army back in England in the 1800s. And back then, uh, it was really a Salvation Army. Today, it's a Salvation Army only in name. The Salvation went out a long time ago. They do a lot of good things, but they don't give salvation out. Oh, William Booth, you never got a handout or did anything to help anybody that you didn't get the gospel about your soul. But times have changed. And, uh, you know, mercy has to be always connected to the truth of the Word of God. And, And it's a good thing when we as Christians devise a plan to get the truth and mercy to people without them ever knowing it. And you know, we think of the word devising a plan. We always think in a bad connotation. We say, well, he's plotting against you. We always think of that in a bad, because most of the time it is. But the verse clearly says that a child of God can devise and plot a plan for somebody else's good. Now, here again in the Bible, we, we see some really good examples of this. I think of David and Mephibosheth. If you ever want to test your verbal skills, just say Mephibosheth ten times real fast. <laughs> Mephibosheth was the with, with son of Saul's, who was David's enemy. And by rights, Mephibosheth should have been David's enemy. Because after all that Saul tried to do in the house of Saul uh, was always against David, David is now king and and he, 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 he knows that Saul had a boy by the name of Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth was lame on his feet. He was crippled. A nurse had dropped him as a little baby, and he, uh, he was lame the rest of his life, and he, 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 he was walked uh, with a limp. He was lame. And David wants to show him mercy. So you know what David does? Without 
Without Mephibosheth ever knowing it, David devised a plan. He called in his servant, Zeba, and he said to him, you go fetch me Mephibosheth, and you bring him to me, because I want him to sit at my table and eat bread as one of my sons. Now, Mephibosheth was the enemy of David. And I want to tell you, if you read the story, Mephibosheth knew nothing about David's plan. And when he heard that David wanted to see him, he's thinking in his heart, he's going to kill me. Because my father tried many times to kill him. But David didn't want to kill him. David brought him in. David gave him a clean clothes, got him a bath, gave him everything that he needed. Mephibosheth, who was the enemy of God, Mephibosheth, who was lame on his feet, Mephibosheth, whose name, you know what his name means? Breathing shame. And David said, I want him as my son. And he plotted and put a plan together to bring Mephibosheth, his enemy's son, his enemy, into his own house. Now, you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture today that you and I were breathing shame and we were the enemy of God. And you know what God did? He devised a plan to get you and me to sit at his table and eat his bread. Amen, brother? Oh, what an incredible example that is. Incredible example. In fact, I'm just going to forget that. I'm just going to preach on Mephibosheth now. I can say it ten times fast, so we'll preach on it. You know what the other one is? The next one is Boaz and Ruth. Oh, there's a good one. Here again, Ruth was a Moabitist. A Moabite. She wasn't a Moabitist, she was a Moabite. <clears throat> and, and, and Boaz, Boaz is a Jew. And here again, the Moabites were the enemies of Israel. She's a Gentile. And the Jews were told to have nothing to do with the Gentiles. But she leaves Moab, she comes there to be with her mother-in-law. She comes there uh, to, to Israel and comes into there to the land. And she gets a job working in the field. And it's a field that belongs to Boaz. Boaz sees her out there. Thinks she's a pretty good-looking girl. He's single. Love's in the air. He, he knows. He, he knows that, man, she, she's pretty hot. I really like her. Well, he didn't say she was hot. I don't think they talked that way back then. <laughs> But he liked her. And you know what he did? He knew that a single beautiful woman, like all of you, (laughs) there was a real danger of working out in those fields with all the men out there. Because men can be men. Sometimes women are glad of it, but men can be men. And, and, and so he didn't want anything to happen to her. So you know what he did? He devised a plan. He called his guys in and he said, look, you put her in this field right here because nothing is going to happen to her and I want her protected because she's something special. And you know what happened, don't you? They wound up falling in love, wound up getting married and, and uh, what, an ingrate, what a great, uh, what a great uh, story that is. And out of that relationship, down the line, you get David. Oh, it's incredible. But there again, you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture today that you and I were the enemy of God. And our Boaz looked down there and saw 
us. And he put us in a field that no thing would ever hurt us. That he wanted us to get the very best. And then he came to us and he, he talked to us. He showed us favor. And one of these days we're going to get married to him. We're all going to be together again. Oh, there's some great examples of, of plotting good, devising a good plan. I think of Abraham of Lot. Abraham always loved Lot. I can't really understand why. Lot is one of the most miserable characters in the Bible. But he always loved Lot. And, you know, it, it caused Abraham sometimes to disobey God. He loved him so much. When God told Abraham to get out of the Ur of Chaldees, he said, leave everything and everybody. But you know what? He brought Lot with him. He loved Lot. And Abraham is somebody who's always behind the scenes trying to get Lot to do what's right. And Lot just continually will not do what's right. In fact, if you look at Genesis chapter 18 and 19, God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the Lord shows up and he sits down there with Abraham and they're having a little fellowship, Abraham knows what he's going to do. He begins to have a conversation with God to try to get God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom, uh, uh, Abraham cared nothing for Sodom and Gomorrah. But he knows his nephew Lot is down there. And he knows if God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's going to get killed. So he begins a plan, and he begins to plot and ask God, oh, it's incredible. He starts with 45. Lord, if you find 45 right people, saved people in that area, will you spare the city? I will. He knew there wasn't 45 people down there. So he says, okay, how about 40? 30, 25, 20, 10. He brings it right down to, I think, five people. If you find five because he's figuring that Lot's got him, his wife, and three kids. Surely Lot would have got his own family saved, but he didn't. Now, God didn't destroy. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but he got Lot out, didn't he? But there's Abraham plotting behind the scenes for somebody's good without them ever knowing it. You know, a lot of you are probably where you're at today because of somebody plotting behind and praying for you that you know everything about till you get home to heaven. You know that? Now, why aren't you doing that for somebody else? I mean, when you want it, one good turn deserves another? I mean, do unto others before they do it to you or something like that, however that thing goes. Now, I'll show you another one. Joseph and his brethren. You know the story. The, 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 the boys sell Joseph into slavery. They hate him because of his relationship with their father, Jacob. So they sell him down into slavery. He wounds up down in Egypt. God intervenes and brings him to the second position in the kingdom, where Pharaoh has basically said, have at it. It's all yours. You run it for me. And now his, there's, a, there's a famine at the same time God puts down in, in, in Goshen land, or down in uh, uh, the promised land where they're at. So they got to come down into Egypt to get food. And lo and behold, when they walk in there, guess who's on the throne they got to deal with? Joseph. Now, they don't know it's Joseph. That's been a long time now. They didn't know it was Joseph. But Joseph knew it was them. Now, by rights, Joseph should have had them thrown in prison. If somebody would have done to some of you what they did, you would never speak to them again. 
you would hate them with a passion and you would spend the rest of your life trying to get even. And you know what? Who would have blamed Joseph if he would have done that? But you know what? Thank God he isn't like you and me. He was like God. One of the greatest verses in the Bible comes out of this where Joseph, when he finally talks to his brothers, and boy, how, how true this is. He says, you know what? You meant it unto me for evil, but God meant it to me for good. Now that's insight. So you know what it is? He plots and he plans because he wants all of them back down with him. And the reason why they got to come back down to him, if you just want to get a little theological here, because there was a prophecy that I that they had to be called out of Egypt. So that's why they have to. That, so he goes back down there, and they have to spend 430 years journeying before they come out as a nation. So he knows a little bit more about it than they did. When you plot and devise a plan for good, there's no ulterior motive in it for you. There's nothing in it for you at all. But there's everything for the Lord. And I say it again, you know, and that's what God did with you and me. God devised a plan to get to you and to get to me. First of all, he devised a plan that he was going to go to the cross to pay for our sins. Second of all, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit of God to come down so I can convict them of their sin to get them to the cross. Then he said, I'm going to send people in their life, put people in their life, give them a church, give them a preacher, give them friends who love the Word of God so they can help them get there. It was the most masterful, devised plan and plot forever to get your soul into heaven. You know, the more I think about it, the Christian life should be an end, a ceaseless plotting of how to bless people and get them the truth of God and help them without it ever being detected. That's the real key to ministry. Right now, you want to put it here at home? Okay, let's do it. Right now, we're plotting volleyball. Most churches have a volleyball league. They, 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 have a, they have a volleyball program, and they all sit around and try to figure out how to minister to people. We put a ministry together and sit around and try to figure out how to play volleyball. <laughs> Why, some of you can't wait to invite people to get on your team. And I don't think for a moment, we don't have that kind of element in our church. I don't think for a moment it's because you want to win. I mean, what is the prestige of winning the Gold Pass Baptist Church Volleyball League. You will not be on the front of People Magazine, I promise you, or Sports Illustrated. Nor will anybody ever care. You may get a free meal at Jason's Deli, but whoop-de-doo. I mean, you've been eating there for the last six weeks every night after volleyball, and now you're going to get a free meal? I mean, I'd just as soon go eat someplace else. So there has to be another reason why you do it. You know why it is? Because you know that's the way you can get people to the gospel. I mean, if I ask for a show of hands here, how many people came into this church? I, I said a couple of weeks ago, and he was gone. He's here today. But that's how we got Darren and his wife and his family. Darren and his wife are some of the most valuable people in this church. But you know what? You know how many years they came and played sport before they ever came to church? Somebody was devising a plan all that time. And I see you do it. And when summer comes around, we're going to devise another plot and plan. It's called softball. I invite people to come all the time. And I tell, I tell them, I say, you know, and they say, well, I'm not a very good player. I don't care. I'm not a very... There are a lot of people that aren't a very good player. <laughs> Almost said I wasn't a very good player. That wouldn't be true. 
I'm terrible at volleyball. I just like to get on the team with three or four people who don't like me, so you knock me down, you feel better about it. That's all. But I don't, it ain't about that. It's about, it's about being together in fellowship, and it's about hearing the devotions and hearing the Word of God, being around people who are clean, wholesome, who love God and love the Word of God, and you all love the same thing. If you're trying to get to a goal in life or a place in your life or your marriage or your life or wherever, the best way to get there once you start getting into the Bible is to get around good, wholesome people to love the Word of God as much as you want to. Hey, I've seen some of you, you planners, you plotters, I've seen some of you put on a social activity, invite 20 or 30 people. You feed them at your own expense. You host the events all for one person or one couple that needed the truth of God or needed a good church. And you plotted and devised a plan to get that going and get them there so they could get around some good people and get the truth. We're talking about going to camp. Camp's a fun time. It's a great week for all the things that kids love to do and like to do. But Zach and Joe and all the rest of you on the 14th, you're going to begin to plot. You're going to begin to devise a plan. You'll have some of the funnest stuff that they could ever do all of their lives. I mean, you really will. You'll do a fantastic job. But you know as well as I do, it's all a means to an end. And that end is to get them the gospel and to get them dialed into the Word of God. That we don't lose another child out of this church to the world. I'm excited to be there this year. I really am. I, the more I think about it, the more excited I get. I love to watch all my people go to work and, and, and do the action. Boy, I tell you, that, I love it. But I just love being there with these kids. I love these kids. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not only going to preach to you the Word of God as best I can, I'm going to teach you how to trap snapping turtles. <laughs> that big pond they got up there, they've got 30, 40 pounders in there, I guarantee you. I'm going to show you. And then Enoch's going to come up and clean them and cook them for us. Where's Enoch? You're going to come up and clean them and cook them, right, buddy? And we'll cook them on the fire. We'll show them what real eating's like, won't we? Absolutely. <laughs> We're going to have a fun time. And the wise and the prudent child of God will continually be on the lookout how to always get mercy and truth to people and have a plan. You know, that's how, I hate to say this, I give away all my trade secrets, but that's how I snag many of you. Joe Christian's in my, one of my best friends in the whole wide world. He's a hero to me, and I love him very, very much. And when I think of, of and he probably would totally disagree with this, but when I think of, uh, when I think of a, a model, it, to me, Joe Christensen is just, he's, he's just a stand-up guy. But I had a plot and plan to get him. He probably doesn't even, not even know it. When we first started our church, his mom and dad came to our church, who were two of the finest people on this planet. I ain't kidding you. I love them with all my heart. They are the the most sincerest, best people that you ever had. But none of their family were going, going to church anywhere. And Joe wasn't really going anywhere. The girls weren't going anywhere. They weren't married yet. Matt and, and David, they, they weren't really going anywhere. 
And so, uh, you know, I, mom and dad, David was a ball player. He played for Osage. He's back in the back today, but he was a pitcher for the Osage and a great pitcher. Like myself, <laughs> now that I think of it. And, and so I knew there was a ball game going up, and, and you were going to come and watch them, Joe. And the girls were going to be there. So I, 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 I thought to myself, I'm going to go to that game. Now, I, 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 oh, I'd love to watch David play, but high school ball isn't my thing. I mean, I'd have to, I went to watch Alex play when he played football for South, right down south and all that, and I enjoyed it. But I don't make my Friday nights and Saturday nights going to those games. I, I, but I went to that game. In fact, I knew where, I'll confess something else to the girls. Where are the girls at? Oh, when I'm in the back. I knew where Fort Osage High School was. But if you remember, I came to your house that day before the game. You guys were very rude to me. <laughs> I knew where it was, but I wanted to be there with you guys. I wanted to talk to you. And we all went over to that ballpark, and then Joe showed up. And I sat next to Joe. We just, I, Joe, I don't remember what we talked about, but we just talked. But I knew at that point in time that this was a great family. And I knew that I had to put together a plan for their good because of the fact that, you know, in Acts sometimes when, that, when, it, when Philip goes to that Ethiopian eunuch, you just hear the Lord say, like he said to Philip, you know what he said to Philip when he saw that old guy out there in a chariot kind of reading that prophet Isaiah? You know what the Spirit of God said to Philip? He says, go join thyself to that man's chariot. I can't tell you how many times in my life that somebody has said, go join yourself to that man's chariot. And today, Joe and his family's here. Love Chrissy. All the boys and the girls are here with mom and dad. Love them all. But I plotted. And now next week, the young, one of the boys is going to do his own devotion. Amen. And the oldest one is going to marry one of my granddaughters. The funniest one, i got to tell you, is, 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 is Judy Schmidt. Years and years and years ago, when Judy first joined the church, she got a burden for all her brothers and everything. They were all good guys, and they are all coming up in Lincoln. Judy had a unique way of getting them to me, a great plot and a great plan. She would go to them and say, Bob wants to talk to you. <laughs> then come to me and say, I told my brother you wanted to talk to him. He's going to make an appointment. Will you take care of it for me? (laughs) Some of you know Dave and Cindy Madden. Some of you knew Dave and Cindy Madden years ago. Cindy Madden, dead now. She went home to be with the Lord. Years and years ago, Cindy was a saved girl, sweetest little gal on the planet. She loved the Lord, loved the Word of God, just a great little gal. But her husband, David, was lost, was unsafe, wanted nothing to do with church. But he liked to shoot. He liked to go to gun shows. 
So I plotted and planned, and we went out shooting out his property a couple of times. This is years and years and years ago. And we started going to gun shows together. And we just started spending time together, and I never pushed anything. He knew where I was, and he knew where he wasn't. One day at a gun show, I'll never forget it, it was down at the old, one of the old uh, halls down there. We're sitting down there, he's real quiet, and he says, Bobby said, I need to be saved. So we left our gun show table, went behind the partitions there, and walked down about, oh, I don't know, 200 feet. One of those old pillars were down there. He got on his knees, and he trusted Jesus Christ, his own personal Savior. But I had to plot and plan and devise to get him. I mean, that's what it is. You're going to either do it to hurt somebody, or you're going to do it to help somebody. But I'm telling you, every Christian ought to be doing it. It's just that simple. I mean, the devil is going to lay a plan and he plots to destroy you in hell and he'll use his people to do it. And God devises a plan and plots it out to save you and he'll use his people to do it. Which one do you want to be taken by? One wants to send you screaming into the lake of fire. The other wants to send you through the gates of the new Jerusalem singing and shouting. But by mercy and truth, Shall be unto them that devise good. Well, look at verse 23. In all labor there is profit, but the talk of the lips tendeth only to penui. Now, then, this proverb is a very easy and simple proverb. It simply says if you don't work, there will never be any profit in your life in a physical sense or a spiritual sense. When the fall took place in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, Adam is told that from that point on, you've got to get up in the morning and go to work. He said, In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground. And you know, the world has many spinoffs on this great proverb and this great principle. Somebody said one time, when opportunity knocks, somebody else will answer the door instead of you because you're lazy. Somebody else said, if you don't climb the mountain, you never get the view. Somebody else said, faith that can move mountains will always come with a pick and shovel. Somebody said, nothing will ever turn up until you're willing to turn it up. Somebody says, I love work. Fascinates me. I can watch somebody do it all day long. (laughs) My favorite one, if you're not the lead dog, your view never changes. That has nothing to do with any of these ones that I gave you, but I just wanted to let you have that one. (laughs) You know, the Christian life is about a work. This church is about a work for Jesus Christ. Jesus came to do the work of his Father. He tells us that, but then he, he, he didn't finish the work. And the reason why he didn't finish the work is because he expects us to finish the work. And the Christian life may not be about works for salvation, which it is not, but it sure is about works after salvation. That Bible says, work for the night is coming when no man can work. The Bible says, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. The Bible says, he has begun a good work in you and performing under the day of Jesus Christ. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 12 says that he saved us and gave us the church for the work of the ministry. And, you know, and I, you know, and I, it's a constant question, you know, and I get it all the time. 
Obviously, there are people who do a lot of works for God simply because they want people to look at them and think that they're spiritual. That's unfortunate, but it happens. Then you have people on the other end that never want to do anything for God, and they'll never do anything. And the question is always always up in the air, you know, and I get it all the time. People ask, well, you know what? I mean, uh, uh, what, what, what should I be doing, and what kind of work should I be doing for the Lord? The answer is simple. Once you become a Christian, your whole life is a work for God in everything about you. Now, that doesn't mean you necessarily get involved in everything it does, but it means that you're ready to get involved in whatever God wants you to get involved in. You know what it means? It means you don't pick and choose what work you get in and what work you don't. You're so dialed in with the Holy Spirit of God and your work with Him is your life, you don't have to worry about ever being someplace in the wrong work or no work because it goes back to your whole life as a work. Wouldn't have been a great thing if Jesus would have come down and just worked through Monday through Friday. His whole life was a work. And it isn't about whether you go here or you do this or you do that or you don't do this or you don't do that. We like to make it on those terms so often. It isn't that way. The bottom line is, when you got saved, listen to me, he began a good work in you and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. Your life is the work of God. Whatever you're doing. I mean, just look around this room. Think of where you, some of you were when you came in here and where you're at now. You know why? Simply because somebody went to work on you. Somebody took you in their world and you became their work. They loved you enough to do their work and give you what you needed. And, and, you know, and don't, you know, I hear it all the time. Well, you don't know how busy I am. Well, these people that did the work on you, what, do you think they're on welfare? They got jobs, they got families, they got careers, they got hobbies, they like to hunt, they like to fish, they like to golf. Some of them get up 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to go to work. Some of them work 10, 12-hour days. It isn't the fact that the fact that their whole life is a work for God. That's the point. And now listen, the cure for almost everything that messes up a child of God will be, uh, will be many times uh, just the fact that you're doing the wrong work or you're doing no work. Or sometimes you're doing the right work the wrong way. It has to be your life. has to be your life. Look at the last part of the verse. But the talk of the lips tendeth only to penury. Now, penury is an old English word. We don't use it anymore, but it means extreme poverty. It goes kin to the word penniless. Now, this person here just gives God lip service, as we say in the world. Now, the context of this, in, 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 to get your notes in the Bible, doctrine would, again, be the nation of Israel. Uh, that's exactly what they did with God. He said in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their hips, uh, lips, <laughs> hips, yeah, lips, do honor me, uh, but have removed their heart from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Now, that's the nation of Israel. Israel talked a good game about God with their lips. But their heart was with the precepts of men. There's a lot of that today. Most of God's people are there today. Certainly most churches are today. And that's because that's how they all come to, to a, a extreme spiritual poverty. God people just talk about learning the Bible. And then never learn it. They talk about getting involved. But then never do. Uh, it just goes. It just goes. Never goes past the talking stage. 
And this is why the spiritual poverty in their life is, is so rampant. And it translates itself into failed marriages, lost families, no power of God in your life. And their hallmark is that they always start something, but they never finish it. Oh, I want to do this in the Bible. They never really finish it. Then they jump to something else in the Bible. And they go from place to place to place, never finishing anything and never learning anything. Just the way it works. Look at verse 24. The crown of the wise is their riches, but the foolishness of fools is folly. Now, a couple of things in this verse we want to look at. First of all, the crown here will be the crown of knowledge of verse 18 that we talked about last week. I want you to know that. And the rich spoken of, of here uh, it will be uh, spoken of here will be that of a wise man, what he has. Uh, there will be the ones who, uh, he'll be the one who sets his affection on things above, like Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. He's the one who will have the true riches. Second of all, it'll be a reference to, obviously, the crown will be a reference to the judgment seat of Christ. In other words, it works like this, and I told you this earlier. A crown of knowledge now, based on the Word of God and the principles of the Bible, will lead to you to a crown of righteousness later at the judgment seat of Christ. But the foolishness of the fools is folly, last part of the verse. And here again will be the two men of Proverbs. One's wise and one's foolish. One's spiritually rich, one's spiritually poor. One's filled up and full and complete, the other one is always completely empty. And then the last thing I want you to see out of this verse is when you wear a crown of knowledge, people will see it and they'll seek you out. They'll, tell, they'll, they'll, they'll see your marriage and see that it's different than theirs. They'll see your family, your kids, and see it's different than theirs. They'll look at your personal life. Romans 14, 7 says, No man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. There's always somebody looking at your life. When Paul stood before Festus and King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, verse 26, he's laying out to these two pagan Gentile kings He's defending himself in his Christianity. And he looks at those kings who, didn't re- who rejected God, hated Christianity, never read the Bible, cared nothing about the things of God, and he looks at them and he says, King Agrippa, you know what I'm telling you is true. And King Agrippa, you know that what, I'm do- what I am doing and what God is doing was not done in a corner. Everybody knew what God was doing. And when everybody knows what God's doing in your life, they see the crown you wear. And when they see that crown on your head, and they see what they perceive you to be happy, be successful, have something that they don't have. That Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to any man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. That verse says that they'll see it in you first before they ask. And you, because you have a work of God in your life, and your life is God's work, you see it immediately, and you put a plan together to get them mercy and truth. Now, this leads right into the next verse here, and boy, it's a great verse. Look at verse 25. 
A true witness delivereth souls, but a deceitful witness speaketh lies. Now the verse is a masterpiece to destroy and yet identify all false religions that are false witnesses. You wouldn't think it. One little word. Boy, this is, you got to love this Bible, man. You got to love the book. Now, Thursday night, we had a lady that came in under the pretense of she had some, and this is that I got this earlier, that she, she just had some verses on baptism for salvation that she wanted, she wanted to be clear on. Now, I knew nothing about this lady. I knew nothing about anything about her. I said, absolutely, let her come, and I'll be kind to her, and we'll lay her out and all these things. And when I got here and she got here, I saw her come down the steps, and I think it was Eve that came over. Maybe it was Ryan that came over and said they had just taken her to dinner and spent some time with her, and, and that she was Church of Christ. The moment I heard Church of Christ, I knew from 45 years' experience the game was over. I knew this was not going to end well. Some of you were naive enough, and you're good people, and I love you very much, and you'll learn and grow if you stay with it. But, uh, you know, uh, you look at something like that, and you, you, uh, you, you, know, you, you feel like, uh, well, this is just a poor... No, no, no. You don't misunderstand something. The Church of Christ is the most, if not the most, one of the most demonic organizations on the planet. I know what they think about Baptists. And I know when they come to a Baptist Bible study what their plan is. And it didn't pr- take long to prove out. Because she got a text from her this morning. What, what happened was that she started a song and dance with baptism for salvation. I just very nicely just held her accountable. Right. And she, she didn't want to be held accountable. Right. And so she got mad and she got up and she, I don't know if she got mad, but she got up and she left. She knew that she wasn't going to accomplish what she came to accomplish that night. Most Bible studies and most Baptist churches are run by marshmallows. She hit the brick wall that night. I'm just telling you. But they're never, never, never out of the game. I told you that night that they come in. She didn't expect what we had. Most Baptist church Bible studies are very informal, very goofy, and nobody knows anything about the Bible. She does. She asks very unassuming questions when she seeks out the crowd that she knows that it's a weak target, soft target, then she goes to work. She may not overtake the Bible study, but she'll pick out one or two weak people that she'll build a relationship with that she wants to know, and before you know, she's got some converts to the Church of Christ because they don't know what they know. You know what that girl did? When she left here, she sent Eve a text yesterday, last night, or this morning thanking her for inviting her here. And then she said, you know what? There were two people that helped me find verses, and that was so kind of them. If you would please give me their f- names and their phone numbers, I would like to contact them to thank them in person. Yeah, I guess you would. They never give up. They never give up. Now, I want to show you. I want to show you something. This is why I love the Bible. That word there says, a true witness delivers souls. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 30, it says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Now we see that winning souls is defined for us as delivering them. 
and you deliver them with a new birth. A new birth, John 3, 3, you must be born again, will take place when you deliver that baby into the kingdom of God. When you win somebody to Christ, when you deliver them, you are the tending physician spiritually who delivers them into the family of God and the kingdom of God. Christ is called the great physician. You are working under his supervision. You know, when a person gets saved, the Bible makes it very clear that they go through seven stages of spiritual growth. We've talked about it many, many times. But that person, we all start at the same place, and we all start out like a baby. Babies in Christ. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, As newborn babes desire, there's the still milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Now that Bible's something else. Now you know why you'll never get to heaven? following the Roman Catholic Church. And if you're a Catholic here this morning, I have no ax to grind with you. I'm just stating the fact. You know why you'll never get to heaven if you're a Jehovah Witness this morning? You know why you'll never get to heaven if you're a Mormon? You know why you'll never get to heaven if you're a Church of Christ? You know why you'll never get to heaven if you're a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or a Methodist or Episcopalian? Now, I didn't say that there wouldn't be people that, that would not be part of that church that would not be saved. What I'm saying is you follow that, those church doctrines and you're going to wind up in the lake of fire. If you got saved, you got saved because somebody got you and witnessed you and won you to Christ in spite of what your church teaches. Amen. And the reason why you'll never get to heaven following those churches because they all teach. You, listen to me now. Here it comes. Oh, the Bible. They teach that you have to be baptized to go to heaven. And when you get baptized to go to heaven, that's not being delivered. You only get delivered by a birth, not a baptism. Birth can deliver you. Baptism gets you wet. It takes a spiritual birth. You must be born again. 1 Peter 1.23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the word of God. When you got born the first time in your physical body, you were delivered by a physician to your family. When you were born again the second time, if you did, you got delivered into God's family by a tending spiritual physician who won you to Christ and delivered you in a new birth. You simply cannot be delivered by baptism. How absurd. What a, what a marvelous verse. One little word destroys every false witness on salvation. You have to be delivered. And you can only be delivered by a birth, not through a work. When you were delivered into God's family by a true witness, the Holy Spirit of God. If you've never been delivered into God's family, if you've only been baptized or you joined a church or you just try to live a good life, there's no deliverance in that. You have to be truly born again because these things cannot deliver you. It took a birth that puts you into a new family. John 8, 44 says, Ye of your father the devils, and the lust of your fathers ye will do. When you were born the first time, you were born spiritually in the wrong family. Getting wet and dunked is not going to get you out of that family. If a birth got you into it, a birth can only get you out of it. If you were born into the devil's family this way, then you got to get born into God's family the same way. You must be born again. 
but a deceitful witness speaketh lies. I told you a couple of weeks ago when the devil destroyed the plan of God in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. I showed you in those verses that when he came to Eve, in those couple of verses there, that wrecked mankind and destroyed and sent everybody on their way to the lake of fire. When you look at the verse, 85 to 90% was right on the money. The world went to hell only on 15% of error. He left everything in there except how to get to heaven. And you're going to find that that's exactly the way they do it today. But these things can never deliver you because they're a false witness. You can only be delivered through a birth. And when it comes to delivering souls, verse 25, every Christian should be a first responder. Our brave police officers, firemen, paramedics, our doctors, our nurses, they're all trained to be able to deliver babies in emergencies. And as a Christian first responder, you and I should be know exactly how to deliver a newborn in the born-again spiritual sense. And you know as well as I do, especially you people in the medical field, uh, that when you, uh, when, when you, sometimes when you deliver a physical baby, things don't go the way they're supposed to go. A baby doesn't get turned the right way, or maybe the cords around its neck or whatever. I hear all kinds of things, and they have to do something different. But a trained responder will know exactly what to do to make sure the birth takes place the right way and a healthy baby gets delivered. Sometimes they have to do a C-section. Sometimes they have to do this. Sometimes they have to do that. But in a spiritual sense, sometimes the new birth doesn't always go exactly as planned. Sometimes when you start to talk to somebody about being saved, they've been they've been had a lot of bad doctrine all of their life, and they, don't, they got things confused. Sometimes they don't understand how the Holy Spirit of God works. Sometimes they think that, that they can lose their salvation. I, haven't, I, I just drive me nuts with people today in churches that make salvation such an easy thing. The Billy Graham Crusades, when you go down front, you get a card, and you read that card. Nobody, nobody's allowed, to, if you're confused on the Holy Spirit of God or baptism or you belong to some cult church, you can't talk about those things. Here's the card. Read it. Bless God, now you're saved. I've been in church after church after the church. When the pastor preaches the message like this, he has everybody bow their heads, and he gives an invitation. Who would like to be saved? Raise your hand. Twenty people raise their hand. He says, repeat after me this prayer, and now you're all saved. I watch Joe Olstein every Sunday morning before I come to church. Pick up a few things. After the end of his sermon, this is what he always does. Now bow your head and pray this prayer after me. And the whole place prays it. Then he says, we believe that if you prayed that prayer and you believe, you're now a child of God. That's like you going into the hospital, going to have a baby. The doctor comes in, looks at you and says, yep, you're ready. Here's some instruction sheets. Read this. Deliver it yourself. Would that work for you? But that's exactly what they do with the spiritual new birth. Here's a card. Read it. I'm not getting involved. 
that's not delivering them. You got to get into their world. You got to get one with them. You got you to get there and understand what they're dealing with and what they're struggling with. Hey, I've had to stop the procedure of soul winning somebody and deal with an issue that they were struck with uh, so many times. Uh, it, it's one of those things where, you know, it, it, I, I don't care if they, I mean, I want them to get saved, but the, what I don't want them to do is not to get saved and then leave thinking they are. Because I, as the attending physician, didn't do my job. And I know right now, some of you want to win people to Christ. You want to learn how to do it. And I just scared the fire out of you. Because you're sitting there saying, oh, how am I ever going to do this? What am I ever going to do? I mean, wow, wow, I want to do it. But what? what if somebody asks me a question and I don't know what to do? What if I mess it up and I abort the thing and, and the whole thing goes down and they go to hell or I give them some fall? I know where you're going right now because you're good people. But you think a doctor who went to be an OB, that's what they call them who deliver babies, right? OB, I don't know. OB? Ob? Well, they call all the empires Al, so I guess it works. They got a little hat that says OB. Anyway, they, they, you think the first time he got out of med school, he never delivered a baby, and he's on his own, and he's got nurses who have done it for 30 years standing around him. This is his first time in there. You think his hands aren't shaking a little bit? You said, you think he, he's, he's, he's not a little nervous about, about I've never really, you think he's going to say her, now, honey, it's going to be okay. I just want you to know, I've never done this before. I had a doctor one time, I had to have a very delicate operation. I won't tell you what it was, because, but it was very tedious and very delicate. And he was a good guy, and he was a good doctor. Most of you old folks know this guy. He's a great guy. I see him every once in a while. Nice guy. And he was a good doctor, but he had just got out of med school. And I went to him because I wanted to give him business, and he was a nice guy. And I had to have a, a surgical procedure that was, that was pretty, it was a surgical procedure. And I had some issues, and he had to take care of them. So I go in, and he looks, examines me, and he says, uh, yeah, he says, we could, we, no problem. And so he says, okay. I said, well, let's, let's get this over with. And he said, okay. He said, now, one thing. I have never done this before, <laughs> but if you hold the book for me, I'll go ahead. And I said, you know what? On a second, I hit that hurt as bad as I thought it did. <laughs> Woo, I'm healed. <laughs> I'm okay. I just know it. Just know it that you could do it was enough for me. I got out of there. Now, he might have done it, and it might have went fine. But I wasn't taking any chances. <laughs> you ain't going to practice on me, man. Get a couple, get some of them cadavers or whatever they're called, you know, and work on them. I don't know how many times I've had to stop the procedure and say, hey, no, uh-uh. Do you understand this? When I'm dealing with a person who's coming from another faith who believes in baptism, you know what I do and has been baptized? You know what I do? Lovingly, kindly. I'm a nice guy. I'm not a mean man. I'll come down there and before I have them pray, you know what I'll say? Ask them. I'll say, now look, do you understand everything that I've said? Now you, you, you're coming out of a religion and a church that believes that you had to be baptized to go to heaven and you got baptized believing that. Now, before we go any farther, right now, I want to ask you, are you willing to renounce that baptism? Are you willing to renounce what you were taught, renounce that baptism, and trust Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior, and then let me baptize you the right way based on the Bible? And if they say yes, we proceed. 
If they say no, then we stop till we either we figure it out or we figure we can't go through with it. It can't be no fast thing just because I want to say I want this guy got saved. And sometimes we want people to get saved, and there's, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But you can't want them to get saved more than they do because that's a bad thing. And you'll learn how to deal with it. You will. You stick around here. There's enough people that you can help with and do this, and you learn the procedure. I'll sit down and show you how to do it and work with you. And, you, and you'll get to that point. You'll get to that point because fundamentally you're a true witness. And when you're a wise man or woman and you wear a crown of knowledge, you can learn, uh, you can learn how to deal with those things and you can use those things and, and you're, you're, you're absolutely in full command uh, when you're the attending physician. When you deliver, you deliver that newborn babe into the family of God. Well, now there were some great verses that we saw today and let's just recap very quickly here and then we'll be, we'll be, we'll be through. First of all, we saw that the aspect of you're either going to devise evil or you're going to devise good. And in this church, for the most part, you guys already understand that principle. I see it all the time. The second thing we saw is the ability to do a work, not just talk about it, but the work to learn the Word of God, realizing that the Christian life is a work. Your whole life is a work for God. You don't just say, well, I, I'm a work for God when I go to restart or I go to the here or I go preach here. No, your whole life is a work. Everything about everything you do is the work. You're finishing the work that Christ started and didn't finish because he's depending on you and me and this church to finish it. Third thing we saw, getting a crown of knowledge now that in time will lead to an everlasting crown of righteousness. Realizing that you're building your own inheritance with everything you do every day of your life. And I know that's not the reason you do it. You do it because God loved you and he did it for you. You love him for you're doing it for him. I understand that. But when you get that crown of knowledge from learning the principles of the word of God and people seek you out and you have the ability to help people, it's only going to translate into an everlasting crown of righteousness on the other side. And then the last thing, fourth thing, and as a child of God with a crown of knowledge, You'll be used of God to deliver souls into the family of God. You know, we talk about a lot of miracles today. Charismatics have their thousands of miracles. Catholic Church has their miracles. Everybody's got a miracle. Everybody looks for miracles. How many times has somebody said, well, we're praying for a miracle? I got news for you. For the church age today and for the body of Christ, Whatever happens in your life between, uh, it will not be a miracle. It'll be between your relationship with God and the Heavenly Father taking care of His child based on how well you've taken care of Him. There's only one miracle today in the church age. Only one. There's only one miracle today in the church age. And it's the miracle of the new birth. The fact that you and I like Mephibosheth. The fact that you and I like Ruth could be an enemy of God, be alienated from God, be everything that God isn't, and that He loves us enough to come down, devises a plan and plots it out for you and me to get into His family. But you only got there one way, 
That's because there was somebody that was prepared to deliver you. Now your job and my job is to let out God prepare us that we might deliver others into the new birth. Let's pray. Father, thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. And again, Lord, I, I pray for this gal that came Thursday night. I pray that, Father, that, that even, uh, Lord, uh, since that night, that the Holy Spirit of God, uh, Lord, we, that I tried to uh, give her the right things to send her out here to think about in the short time that I had. But, Lord, Holy Spirit of God, you have to do that work. And I pray for her. I pray that at some point she'll truly get delivered and she'll truly find Christ as her own personal Savior, that she'll leave the false witness of the church that she's in. And, Lord, that she'll turn to the true witnesses, which is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God, and being delivered into salvation by a new birth, not by baptism. Thank you for these queer folks today. I love them dearly. Thank you for everybody in this church and for the times that you've used all of them to, to bring somebody to Christ, for the things that they do unselfishly, the things that they give and the things that they do for others, and the many here who plot and plan for others' good to make sure that, that they get the mercy and grace and truth that they need. Now, bless the rest of this day. Bless the activity today with the kids and the time down at Crown Center. And bless our fellowship together. We just hang out and enjoy each other because we love each other. But we love each other because you put us together. We love you for that because you first loved us. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.